everyone, and welcome to episode three of Smaller Narratives for a Larger World. This is a podcast project sponsored by the Comparative Literature and Anthropology Departments at Binghamton University. My name is Jillian Kenna, and I am a co-host on the show and a graduate student studying English at Binghamton University. Today, I am joined by Dr. Susan Smullyan, professor in the Department of American Studies at Brown University, and recently stepped down as the director of the John Nicholas Brown Center for Public Humanities and Cultural Heritage. Thank you for joining me today, Susan. Everyone on the Smaller Narratives for a Larger World team is elated to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, Jillian. It's fun to talk to you. Of course. So to get started, I would love to talk about your newest publication in public, I believe it was published in 2020, Doing Public Humanities. So this, this book features various essays from scholars and practitioners who discuss different case studies ranging from websites, exhibits, tours, and more. Can you tell us about the impetus behind this project? Well, when I was directing the Center for Public Humanities at Brown, there were a bunch of um, people, faculty, postdocs, students, undergraduates and graduate students, visiting scholars who were practitioners, professors of the practice, um, who were fellows of the center, who were doing these amazing projects. And I realized that we didn't really have what you might call a scholarship of public humanities, that no one had really talked about that. Everyone had talked about how there couldn't be a scholarship and you had to just pay attention to these the projects themselves. But I thought we might be able to um, do two things at once, which is to collect some of these examples as models for how public humanities might be practiced. Um, at the same time, we provided people with a chance to actually publish and think through what a, an account of these projects would look like and what they had learned from the projects. Because um, often in these public projects, you do them, but but there isn't there isn't time for, or it isn't built, reflection is not built in the way it is in other um, kinds of scholarly pursuits or projects. Um, so I wanted to see if we could um, do two things at once, show, um, show the projects, uh, as models, and um, and then and then think about what a scholarship of public humanities would look like. I was also very proud of the fact that these projects, um, most of the ones we did, had um, a, a conversation about race and an analysis uh, of the construction of race at the at the center of their. Um, of their work, and so I, we wanted to be sure to um, to to it wasn't a question of including though, of looking for uh, diversity. It was a question of making sure everybody saw the diversity that was already there, um, and so the way in which these projects foregrounded um, that particular mode of analysis was important to us. Um, so maybe that's three things. Uh, okay. that three reasons we wanted to put these um, projects together um, in a book. And we're, we're ple I'm pleased with how it came out. Um, the, the projects themselves are very different and the way in which people wrote about them are different. Um, I, I, the Routledge, the people who published it, Routledge would, um, did a pretty good job. Um, and I like that it's available as an ebook, so people can use um, just chapters of it in classes if, if that's what they wanted to do. We've had a great, um, a pretty good reaction from practitioners who've been uh, interested in it. So um, scholars and, and community organizers um, who work in public facing um, uh, programs um, have been interested to see how uh, these collaborations were managed, but also they are very interested in what actually we did. Um, could could they, you know, try and get a library back in their um, neighborhood the way the folks at the Chinese Historical Society of New England and Diane O'Donohue at Tufts um, brought a library back to the Chinese neighborhood in Boston? Um, could you know, could they do community collecting um, and community archives the way um, postdoc Jim McGrath at Brown and the, the um, collection staff, the archival staff at the Providence Public Library did. Um, so they, they were interested in what we actually did. Um, whereas the folks who teach in public history programs and in 
public humanities programs and other kinds of engaged scholars programs around the country um, are interested both in how we documented and thought about what we did, um, as well as what actually happened in those collaborative uh, moments. And, and I think people are using, are using, picking and choosing chapters to use in classes, which is terrific. Right, that is great. And so even focusing on the term public humanities, our podcast is actually funded by a public humanities grant from the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities, otherwise known as IASH. And this specifically funds projects that link research and scholarship conducted at Binghamton University in conjunction with initiatives and public engagement that include local, state, national, international public audiences. So could we talk a little bit more about what public humanities means? How is it different from quote unquote regular humanities and what sort of called for the emergence of this subdiscipline? Well, for years at the, um, there's the Center uh, for Public Humanities at Brown has a two-year uh, terminal, not terminal, you're not supposed to say that anymore. Um, a, it, it sounds too dire, but a concluding <laughs> master's, um, and as well as PhD students who, who take courses on the way to the PhD in various uh, fields. Um, and the students would rewrite the Wikipedia entry on public humanities every year. And I undertook it uh, a, a couple of months ago when the book came out, to, so we could include the book in the in the Wikipedia entry. And it's it's not easy. People, you know, definitions never are. So I'm going to do what people usually do, which is sort of talk around it. A lot of people focus on audiences. Uh, and when they talk about public humanities, they say, oh, what I always call the private humanities, um, regular humanities, it focuses on um, uh, faculty write books for other faculty members. Okay. Um, I, I don't know if every faculty member does that, but that's what they say. And then public humanities um, tends to have a different product um, and to try and appeal to um, a bigger audience. Um, so I think in addition to audiences, you can think about products, um, you know, what, what is the product of a humanities, of humanities scholarship, often a book or a monograph, um, those of us in the university are interested in that, and then, the, and then often public humanities, people talk about uh, an exhibit or, a, uh, I didn't mean to say it like that, an exhibit or, a, um, um, you know, some kind of program um, um, or or a, a book that's meant to appeal more to a, a tour. We did a whole project on uh, tours. We called the new tour and we had people come in and talk about the tours that they were providing. And we worked um, for a long time with the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities on something called Road Tour from Rhode Island, R-H-O-D-E, um, which is a set of online um, uh, using CurateScape, which is a open source software that connects to Omeka, uh, another open source software that helps ordinary people build exhibits. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of um, thinking about audiences and products. Um, I wonder uh, sometimes if we if we don't think often enough about um, uh, who does the 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 making of the product. Um, so the President of Brown, I always say, understands public humanities as translational humanities. Um, she thinks that it's about the faculty um, translating their work so that other people can understand it. There's a little bit of it. I don't mean that she and herself, but in that kind of view, uh, one um, hears the uh, hierarchical uh, positioning of the faculty member as the person who knows everything and everyone else, sometimes known as the community or the public, um, don't know very much. And so um, the, that your expertise is what you offer up. I, I'm actually, I'm not against that work. Um, I, I think it can be great. You spend your life. Um, my own scholarship was for years on radio uh, history and the guys who are the old time radio fans uh, are mad for really love my book, my first book on radio broadcasting. Um, and I love to talk to them. They, they know a lot about radio. And, and so I'm, I'm perfectly I'm thrilled to be um, translational in that way, a scholarship that it meets um, the interest, happens to meet the interest of some group of um, sort of specialized fans. 
but I'm not sure that works for me anymore as a definition, that translational definition of public humanities. And so I, I tend to try and think of this more as, I, I use some of the work that my anthropologist colleagues have, have worked through over the years about their relationships to the communities they study um, and have come up with a what I hope is a more collaborative model um, so that the the projects themselves are part of the product of scholarship and and then the thought and what we learn from them um, is another part of the product of scholarship. And so I, I think of the scholarship as two pieces, uh, both of them, I hope collaborative with the with groups in the community. I, I just start, have come to think that when universities wander into the community and present programs, that they're terrible flops. Mine always are. Uh, and I mean, I, I've had terrible flops with the, with the uh, Providence um, Community Libraries where I brought, I got a little grant from the American Studies Association and we, and, and we brought faculty members into the public library to give talks, you know, very basic, so not basic, but sort of general um, talks on Latinx literature and, um, and, and sometimes we cho chose one book and we talked about that. Sometimes we, everybody gave the sort of first cla class in their, um, in their course, uh, you know, sort of an intro class. Um, and, and it was now, it was a terrible flop. Nobody came. Um, and I, you know, I just think people weren't that interested in hearing professors opine. Now, I have to say that our colleagues at Yale who do a public humanities program as well have had much better luck with that than I have. Uh, and so they, they have a way of either figuring out what people want to hear, which then we're talking about a form of collaboration, or somehow um, more in tune with and pitching uh, or, or they're at a different, uh, they're at a different site. They're not at the branch libraries. They're at the main library, which gathers, you know, can gather a big enough audience from across the, um, from across the city, whereas at each branch library might just have one. Anyway, there's a, I don't know. I think there's lots of reasons why mine flopped, but one of them was that we didn't, you know, we didn't go out and ask the readers at the library, what do you want? Um, and I, and so I think that I took that as a, um, as a way to think a different, I needed a different way to think about public humanities. So I came up with audiences and, and, um, products and collaboration, um, and, and, and some kind, if, if, if your definition has something about each of those, um, I think you're in better shape. Right. So would you say that collaboration first starts with the initial outreach and asking what community members or nonprofits or whoever you may be working with, what they're looking for, what they're looking to do, what their goals are and seeing if you potentially share some? That's a that's a that's a, what I would call one uh, or, or one. That's the sort of the way most people think to start. I think the best thing to do is to just go to the organization and start and and start a long-term relationship uh, and and that can be you know where do you need hands and and then you just you know you basically just pitch in and then you become you become part of the organization it's a lot like what anthropologists do uh, you know they go and become part of the community uh, so that then they can understand what it's like to as much as they can uh, to be part of the community. And I, I think that's right. Um, it's, 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 it's more participant than observer. Uh, and, and I think, so I think one way to do it is to, but I think it, there's not enough trust when you just show up one day and say, oh, what can we do? What can we do for you? Um, but it's a good start. It's better than not asking that and just saying, here, we have a program we'll give you. Uh, but uh, you know, so I think it's, it's, these things are always worth thinking about. Everyone is different. That's why it's hard. Each organization is different. Each community is different. Each university is different. Each scholar is different. So it's, it's, a, it's kind of a, I mean, I've had terrible, I've had good luck with going in and saying, what do you need? What, what do you think students could do? What do you think faculty could do? And, and, and going from there. Um, 
I've had good luck with things that seem more top down, or I've seen people do things um, that where the scholar goes in and says, look, I'm a specialist in this kind of data collection or this kind of issue. Um, I'll do the data collection here. I'll leave my data for you. And I'll do three workshops on, you know, how to deal with the immigration um, authorities. I mean, I've seen all sorts of things work. Um, and I've seen all sorts of things fail. So it's, I, it's, it's, you can't, the checklist is, is hard. Uh, you know, it's hard to come up with a checklist of what will work. And it's what makes the work interesting and challenging, um, that there's so many different possibilities. Right, of course. So let's jump into your work with New Urban Arts, which is a nonprofit located very close to Brown University that you came in as a volunteer and you spent about 10 years in that organization. Is that correct? Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I, I didn't think of it as an object of study. I thought of it as my volunteer work, what middle class people in the United States, many of them, I would go further. The ones I like are all doing some kind of service to the community. In part, this is because our government doesn't do all sorts of things. So when I traveled, I tried to find what my colleagues in Australia did, what my colleagues in France did. You know, well, you know, where are you on the board? What, what, you know, do you spend your Saturdays at the soup kitchen? Do you, you know, what do you do? You know, do you help with the recycling? And they all said, what are you talking about? The government does all that. <laughs> we don't do that. You know, nobody has to do that. So, but in the United States, most of the people I know are, are working hard. Um, the faculty are on the board of this, that, and the other. So I didn't go in thinking that this was an object of study. I went in thinking this is, you know, my civic, my civic duty. Um, and so I, and I went in at a sort of high level. New Urban Arts is an after-school art studio for emerging artists and um, high school students. Um, the high school students come in um, not every day, but a couple of days a week. Um, they work with um, artist mentors uh, in what can only be described as free form uh, uh, interactions uh, to, you know, practice art. Or practice creativity um, in a range of different ways. There, I mean, it's it's now divided up into you know. There's some people do screen printing, some people do photography, some people do spoken word. There's even a little bit of music these days. Photography, you know, there's painting and drawing, um, all sorts of possibilities. A lot of fashion bought a lot of sewing machines in the last couple of years. Um, so and they have their own storefront. Uh, right across from four or five of the four of the high schools in Providence, so the kids just basic the students basically um, fall out of school and over to New Urban Arts. So this kind of after-school program and um, is is um, happens all over the United States and nowhere else. I mean, in in other places, the, the schools just go longer, or there are programs for kids in school. In Australia, they, there just isn't anything like this. Um, nor in Europe, nor you know. So it's a it's a U.S. thing. This after school program that that someone else has to manage. The school doesn't manage. So I um you're not allowed to uh, as a volunteer or to help out at New Urban Arts. You're not the the artists. The, the studio is at least as much for the emerging artists as it is for the um, students. So someone with no creative um, abilities, they would say that's not true at New Urban Arts, but but with my skill set is not welcome in the studio. Um, so I, I joined as a, a board member uh, and I uh, helped raise money and I licked envelopes and I, you know, for fundraising appeals and I helped the board run and I learned a lot about budgets, some of which I knew for managing grants. It turns out I had a lot of this, I could run a meeting, um, you know, I could, I, I could ask people for money because if you don't think you do that as a faculty member at a private university, you haven't been a faculty member at a private university. So I had all sorts of skills that I, it never occurred to me that were useful to them. And after about, I don't know, six, eight years, one of my colleagues, Bob Lee said to me, you know, this is your work. This isn't like you're doing new urban arts over here and your scholarship is over here. This is how, you know, you've learned to run a nonprofit 
arts organization, you're going to teach that to the master's students uh, who are coming in in public humanities. And you have really interesting ideas about the role of the arts and what we can learn from them and um, you know, what that teaches us about the, the relationship between the arts and the humanities. Um, I had learned uh, from New Urban Arts a whole bunch of stuff that I could write about. Uh, and so I didn't think of it as, I, it, so I, I don't know that that's a model. It certainly is one way uh, to do it is this deep dive into an organization or into a form. I can imagine doing two years at, at a public library and two years at the arts organization. And, you know, I can imagine moving around a little more. I can imagine being more um, directed, more, more self-conscious that that's what you were doing. Anyway, so when it came time to think about writing a, um, an essay, I wrote about um, New Urban Arts is a form of social practice art, which I had learned a lot about because I, I went into New Urban Arts and I thought, what are they doing? You know, do they know? They know what they're doing. Uh, and they write about it on their website. They're very verbose, my friends at New Urban Arts. They write all the time. Um, and so they have it all written down. And, but I had to go learn about social practice art. And, um, and I, it came clear to me that the artists um, who are, who are working in this um, genre uh, had a lot to teach uh, those of us who were working in the humanities. So I always say the arts is what the humanities writes about. And I'm writing about new urban arts instead of writing about uh, Picasso uh, or a sculpture in the town square, I'm writing about new urban arts became my, um, the, my at that point sort of an object of study. And then I said, what can this what can the arts the social practice art this kind of art that's that's done in a, a storefront studio teach us about um, how we do the humanities and i thought to myself why isn't there a new urban history why isn't there a new urban poetry why isn't it why aren't we why aren't we practicing the humanities in storefronts all over town why are we only doing the arts in storefronts all over town so that's what i wrote about uh, in, in my essay. Um, so I don't know, I mean, you'd have to tell me, Jillian, uh, what, what people could take away from that. It seemed so, it, at first it seemed so idiosyncratic to me. It was just what I did. Um, and so, and here's the story. Uh, but when I looked at the other essays, I thought, here's a way to capture, um, the scholarship that's happening uh, in everyday life, um, you know, this this scholarly work that I was doing in my head, uh, but wasn't writing down because it didn't seem important. Um, and how can I capture that? How can I get that peer reviewed? How can I uh, put that out in the world so other people can learn what I learned uh, about New Urban Arts? And so that's when that's the other impetus for the book is what, where am I going to publish about New Urban Arts? I said, and I thought, well, I'll just have to get some some of my buddies who are doing similar things and we'll put it all together. And so how do you think partnerships between universities with nonprofits such as New Urban Arts can be a symbiotic relationship or it seems as though in the book the term social bridging is preferred? Yes, um, that's a term that uh, Nina Simon uses. Um, her book I really love. She ran she wrote a blog for years, a Museums 2.0, and then she ran the Santa Cruz Museum. I don't know, I just like her work very much. And she's got a book called On Relevance, and she talks about social bridging um, as a way to, to move away from the sort of hierarchical um, idea that some, uh, some cultural insights are more important than others. Um, I, you know, I think universities do it in a range of ways. Um, I, it has often been left to what in my day, I'm very old now, but in my day was called um, volunteer work. Um, now people call it um, uh, socially engaged scholarship, but it's often left to um, uh, organizations on campus that do very often very good jobs of interacting with the community um, and the students go out and are, they're now, you know, very well trained and um, culturally adept and, and, 
you know, young volunteers, and they go out and work in these various organ in various social organizations and political, you know, a range of different things, you know, in the social sciences and the humanities, whatever, if you want to make a, a split, but but across a range of stuff, sciences too, um, you know, they, we have we have students volunteering at hospitals and in labs and, and so, you know, at the community health departments and stuff. And so that has that has gotten better and better over the years, I think, um, those programs have, and they've tried and and some more successfully than others um, to move into classrooms so that students get credit for the kinds of work and insights they gain from working in the community. I, you know, it's still not my favorite mode. It's still hard to get away from sort of this idea that the students are privileged and have this free time that they can devote. I mean, but that's how, I mean, that's what I did at New Urban Arts. I was privileged and had free time and I devoted it to them and I learned a lot. So I'm, I, you know, I'm not against it. I, I, I find that the, in general, the, the, the split between the faculty and these uh, organizations is deep uh, and wide. And so they talk about socially engaged scholarship, but there aren't many faculty who are in there. Sometimes they're not faculty who are involved. And if they are, it's in sort of a, yeah, it's a tough, it's tough. These relationships are, take a long time and they're, um, fragile and you know things change at the university and things change at the organizations and they're hard to they're hard to manage um and so i i think that that my and the book comes out of a um a private school mentality and i think the state universities have a really different relationship to the communities in which of which they're a part um and and I think it's in some ways the bridging is easier at states universities. It's part of the mission of this, the the state universities to to make those bridges, um, and they and they at base at their mission level they feel more part of the communities. Um, you cannot convince Brown and the administrators at private universities that this is part of their mission. They say, you know, we can do this if it doesn't cost much money because our goal is not this. This is not our goal. But you know, land grant universities, this is their goal uh, to improve the communities of which they are part and, and to work with them. So, you know, from from the time they were ag schools. Um, so I I think it's a little less of a heavy lift at the publics than at the privates. Um, and I'm sorry, I've wandered so far. I think I may have uh, lost the thread of your question. No, Ask no it again worries. if I haven't. So we were talking about how a potential partnership can be a symbiotic relationship between a university and a nonprofit. But let's maybe get into the fact that it was just you representing Brown at New <laughs> Urban Arts. Like there wasn't a an official relationship. And do you think that partnerships could could benefit by becoming more official? Does it matter if they're official or what is your stance on that? I don't think I have a, I, I mean, I think, I think it's all about the money. Um, and so, um, you know, one of the things, all nonprofits look at universities as, as a place to get some funds because they look at everything as a place to get some funds because it's a tough scramble. Um, and and most universities are are not willing, they don't want to give money to nonprofits because that's not their mission. Uh, so, you know, they, they're willing to give time, um, faculty, student, staff, time perhaps. But so I think that for me, what I did was, was reframe this. Um, so, you know, faculty who do research about various things, there's no relationship between the, it's them. And so I, I gave up trying to change the university and decided to change my form of scholarship. Uh, and then that made my life a lot easier. And maybe I'll leave it to the the next crowd uh, to to push a little more on the university, um, but those that's you know that's a tough push. 
changing the university is a tough push. So yeah, I think the university should, you know, work hand in glove with the communities in which they are a part. And if they want to choose a few places to put their time, energy and money and support their faculty and students. I for years tried to get my own department to partner with the Providence Community Libraries in a deep and meaningful way uh, and just do it you know, over and over again and use some of the, you know, we only need a couple of grand to set up some lectures and reading groups and, and, and my own department was not particularly interested. And, um, and, and so I, when I couldn't move the department, I figured it was, it was a pretty heavy lift for the university. Um, part of what happens is, is, but it's, these are all heavy lifts, you know, they're, it's, it's hard, as I say, the, the, the people change, things move along. Uh, my colleague, Diane O'Donoghue, who teaches at Tufts and has been a visiting prophet Brown, um, is at the Tisch School for Civic Engagement there. And she's had better luck um, involving Tisch in the, which has a branch of the medical school is in basically in Chinatown in Boston and involved getting them involved. She applies for various kinds of money at Tisch and they give her the money and sometimes space to put up exhibits with the Chinese Historical Society of New England. Um, and so she's had a much easier time as a private university, but um, you know, sort of deeply embedded in this, this dense urban and pretty poor neighborhood. Um, and they've had, a, she's had better luck at sort of embarrassing them into into supporting these things so i think it's possible uh but they tend they've tended up till now to be one-offs um our colleagues at university of, um, at rutgers newark uh have this amazing they do a sort of public humanities across the curriculum in some ways it's not what they call it but they have a public history programs they have they have a center um, and they are have this deep and um, Newark is a really uh, place with a lot of challenges. And this is their branch campus of the of their state university. And they have done an amazing job of embedding the university and the work of the university in the community so that the faculty are expected to work in Newark, um, whatever their uh, other uh, any other kinds of scholarly work they're expected to have a project in the community with the community um so i think they've done a really good job so there's a there's some uh, good examples I, I think the tisch school through diana donahue and rutgers newark are places to look for universities that are really and then there's a bunch of universities in a consortium called imagining america um, and they have some white papers on, on how best universities might collaborate with communities. And I rec always recommend their work um, and their projects um, as good models for that. Um, I, they tend, as I said, to be not to be the big private schools, so not the R1s. Uh, I, I think those places are hard to move uh, and, and not as interesting. Um, as the sort of branch campuses and um, and and smaller publics um, tend to have more interesting experimental collaborations uh, with with communities. Um, so that's where I'd look for examples. Right, great. Thank you for sharing that. And so, why do you think academia has resisted the form? Of public humanities previously, or rather, has had never had never been exposed to this type of collaboration. Where is this resistance? Do you think it's coming from? Is it does it have to do with the institution as a whole, as a university, sort of staying focused on money is the goal here? We have separate goals that aren't necessarily, you know, even intersecting with that of the community, or. Is it also just the fast-paced, competitive nature of academia in general, especially when you think about graduate students who oftentimes are sort of on, you know, the ground floor working with projects like these, or at least trying to. And then there's also this pressure of, you know, you have to get published. Where can you get published? Do our publications are going to even accept this type of work? And I think those sort of 
I don't know, guidelines or really obstacles. They actually are obstacles to this type of work. So yeah, if you could just provide some insight about that. So let me let me divide that into two pieces. I think I'll get to the very real world, uh, what faces graduate students in a minute, but, but I really think we're talking about status and the ways in which um, PhD scholars have thought of their work. Um, and I think the further removed it is from everyday life sometimes, uh, the more status they think is attached to it. Um, you know, and, and people have said to me, I, I didn't go into this in order to, in order to, to do that kind of work. You know, I, I went into this in order to be in the archives, in order to be in the library, in order to be thinking great thoughts, in order to be working with college students, not other people. Um, and so I, I, I hear that, you know, that people get to choose what kind of work they want to do. And I've I've drunk the Kool-Aid. I mean, I think um, there's a lot of kinds of scholarship to be done. Um, and I don't know that everyone has to do this. Although I'm always amused at the people who choose to. So my colleague, who I respect enormously and tried to get to write a chapter in the book, um, Amy Remensnyder is a scholar of medieval Europe. Um, and, and you would think, well, how could Amy? And Amy has started pretty much single-handedly um, the only Brown connection to um, prison education. And she has got her colleagues in the history department and they teach not for credit because it's the, the obstacles from Brown and from the state have been too high. And honest to goodness, we worked on this for years. Um, but she and her colleagues go into the men's medium in, um, prison in, in Providence, medium security prison in Rhode Island, and and teach every year, teach a all year round, teach a not for not for credit course. Uh, and she teaches sometimes on medieval Europe. Sometimes she teaches on, now she's teaching on incarceration. She's got a Brown class on incarceration. So she's found a way to take what she knows uh, and, and, and use it in, in all sorts of ways. And she's become an expert on prison education in addition to being an expert on medieval Europe. So that's one. So people, I think faculty, and I know graduate students are eager for to see the ways in which their work, in addition to, to you know, pushing forward the bounds of knowledge can also help change the world. And they're eager to see that. And, and I, think, um, I, I think what I tell graduate students is we spent a lot of time in the last, I don't know, 10 years, changing the rules, trying to change the rules around um, tenure, which is the levers in universities for what kind of scholarship gets done. Um, so if you can count, and I sort of put that in quotations, if you can count um, a, a different kinds of scholarship exhibits, uh, public um, facing work, uh, toward tenure, then you have a then you have a better chance of having room in your schedule to do that kind of work. So we spent a long time doing that, and we moved the needle a little. Um, you know, so especially people who who do public history um, have have the the American Studies um, requirements now. American Studies Association, the Organization of American Historians, the MLA. I mean, various people, various. Um, uh, Groups have uh, adopted um, a white paper on, you know, what what kinds of work we we can talk about when we talk about tenure. I don't think you're going to get rid of the monograph anytime soon. But there's a range of other work. Everybody's always doing something else. Everybody's always writing an article. Can you substitute this for an? And I think we've 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 got a little we've got a little wiggle room there. Not as much as I would like. So what I've been thinking about is how do we write about this work uh, so that we can take the work we love and that we think is important uh, and have it be part of our um, professional lives. And that's what this is about. And I'm, that's what I'm working on now is thinking through an essay for an, an issue on, of Daedalus, which is the um, uh, American Academy of Arts and Sciences um, sort of public facing, it's not that public, but public facing um, uh, journal uh, about they're going to have an issue on public humanities, and I think what I'm going to write about is 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 what does the scholarship of public humanities look like, which is sort of where we started, um, and I'm interested in that as a um, as a way to think through 
um, what what do we look for in, in a public humanities uh, in public humanities scholarship and and that's all the things we've talked about um, that I was talking about as part of social practice art. So it's public, it's community-based, the process is important, it's collaborative, it has a sort of social justice frame. Um, and so those sort of four legs seem important to me, but then how, how do we document it? Um, so if you do an exhibit, it's documented and you could have, a, um, you could have an exhibit um, uh, peer-reviewed, um, which seems to be, and I, I take peer review seriously. You know, you, you, I, I think it's important that stuff works for the community, and I wonder if there can be community review as well as peer review, but but I take review seriously. That's part of scholarship, and it's a part I don't want to throw out. Um, so I found this idea of case studies that write about what we learned, um, describe the project, write about what we learned, whether what we learned is a is something about public humanities or is something about um, the social construction of race or is something about um, policy uh, and how do you move the city government and the public library to, 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 to change or it's something about um, um, you know what is the relationship between the arts and the humanities whatever it is that you've learned and you can put that into a, a into um, into your your description so that so that um, public humanities case studies become analytical as well as descriptive. Um, you'd have to have both, um, but if you could have both, um, then maybe we could start talking about a scholarship of public humanities that would be uh, legible um, to um, uh, tenure committees for just one example. Um, I, you know, it's not a revolutionary thought, it's more of an evolutionary thought, but you know, I have a lot of sympathy for the fact that we should be, we work for the big changes and we live sort of in the little changes, which is why I loved your, the title of your podcast. Uh, you know, that, that, that the graduate students need to know right now, how do I make this work uh, legible for hiring committees? Um, and, and I think if you can, um, then this work becomes, everybody knows this is the kind of work that needs to be done in universities. I, I think there's goodwill, I just, it, to a certain extent, as long as it doesn't change things too much. <laughs> and so if we can figure out how in the short term to work within those parameters, that's what I'm aiming for in the book. In your presentation that you gave at Yale on the book, you discussed this idea of, quote, radical potential of public humanities. And for you, Susan, how close are the public humanities to achieving this radical potential? And what does that look like for you? Well, we, when I was a graduate student, we used to talk about after, we used to sort of joke about after the revolution, what will we do? And it was sort of a joke and it was sort of a, you know, I think the universities would be very much changed that the publics, the privates would take on some of the missions, the mission statements of the publics and the publics would live up to their mission statements uh, where they wouldn't be separate. They wouldn't be, we always talk about Brown is on the hill and New Urban Arts is down at the bottom. And you know, the, the two miles between them is is a huge gulf. Um, the students at the, at, at, at the they can't imagine what happens in universities. The students at New Urban Arts don't have any idea of what happens in universities. And, and Brown doesn't see it as part of its, its work to, um, in, in general, it doesn't see it as part of its work to, to be a good citizen um, as a, an institution, as an organization. I mean, that's not completely true. You know, they run medical schools, there's a school of public health, they have some, but they're thinking big thoughts. They don't, you know, aren't thinking about how, um, you know, I, I don't I don't see Brown given, vac given vaccinations. They're not helping get people, you know, they have, um, you know, universities have huge infrastructures that work very well, thank you very much. And, and the United States has a terrible infrastructure that works piss poor. And so, you know, I, you can see a million ways. I, I, I have a friend at one of the lowest performing high schools in the country is, and certainly in the state, is just up the street from New, from, from Brown. Um, and, and I have a friend who said, if every, if every adult, at, by which we mean someone over 18 at Brown, 
even let's leave out the students. Just every staff member and every faculty member agreed to mentor one student from Hope High School for a year. They would change the world, you know, and, and this is just not even a possibility. You, you know, nobody, so this, you, I, I can't, and to a certain extent, I can't even think about radical change because I can't, I, I've, I'm sort of beat down by working in a system that just can't even think of small changes. Uh, but I think it's important to think big and I would think about a university who took its um, responsibilities as citizen uh, more seriously, not only in the sciences, uh, or the social sciences, but in the humanities as well. Um, if we really believed, um, just like we believe that scientific knowledge is important, you know, and, and, and now everybody's just so scandalized that people don't take, don't believe science. Well, you know, have you done anything up till now to help people believe science? No, you, you know, you don't do that. That isn't part of what a scientist does. Well, maybe it should be. But I also think that's true of the humanities as well. You know, if, if, if what we think is important is to understand, you know, the United States history as a, as a history of um, racial oppression, not to mention gender oppression, then you, you, that changes how you how people understand the world. It's not that people of color don't know this and universities are the only people who know that, but we pride ourselves on the ability to teach difficult concepts. So why aren't we in charge of teaching white people difficult concepts about race? Um, you know, so I, I, the head of the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities, Elizabeth Francis, who is a PhD from American Studies at Brown, um, once um, challenged a, a, a classroom full of uh, MA students and PhD students, a classroom of graduate students in public humanities. And she said, you know, we have these initiatives, let's um, cure cancer. And we bring together all the big um, science um, uh, um, institutes and universities and medical schools and you know and she she showed one that had all the um, logos of all the places and, and you know and then we give them billions of dollars and we say okay go cure cancer so what if we had one that was going to cure racism uh you know what would what would it look like uh what what scholars would you want involved where would you do this i have to say i think if you're interested in in and change right now, I look at the Mellon Foundation. They're doing a really interesting job of funding initiatives in the humanities uh, around race uh, and, and, and racial reckoning. And I, I think they're doing terrific work. I haven't gotten any of the money, but I think it's, it's, really, it's really good work. And so I, I think because it's so hard to see the end point uh, for a radical vision. I point you to some of the way stations along the way. Um, and, and so there's a couple of them. Right. And so thinking of, you know, scholars having the role as both potentially as teller and listener of a story, right? If we think about scholarship at the simplest level as a form of storytelling, how do we sort of operationalize this role in the community? And, and that's to say, should we be prioritizing this role of storytelling in that same way, or? I think it's also interesting, Jillian, that that as a, as a person who's studying literature, um, that that's your frame. Um, and I'm, you know, some of the rest of the humanity is not so big on storytelling uh, and, and find it, you know, so I tend to say, and I don't know why I resist the storytelling metaphor. Um, and I think that would be really interesting. That would be a really interesting uh, piece uh, for you to think through and write is that who uses this metaphor and how is it helpful? Uh, you know, it, is it, and how is it not helpful? Um, because you can imagine a way in which that metaphor uh, can be used in a hierarchical way. There's a storyteller and there's a listener. Uh, and, but, uh, you know, are these, but, but many people use it. Oral historians use it. They talk about storytelling all the time. Uh, folklorists use it. Anthrop some anthropologists use it. 
But the, the more social scientists among us tend to talk about analysis, uh, you know, how and who has the best analysis, not who has the best stories. Um, and maybe they're the same, uh, but I tend to, um, it, it's not that I think that, that the scholars, um, only scholars can do analysis. I think the analysis of the, some of the students at New Urban Arts um, of, of racial disparities is, disparities isn't right, but of racial oppression is is spot on. Um, you know, I think we know that rap artists have the, the best uh, analysis of, of, um, of, of race in the United States and have for years. So, I mean, I think analysis happens in, in lots of places and I'm not sure why I prefer uh, analysis to storytelling, but somehow it feels, and it may just be my own disciplinary background in history uh, that makes stories seem to me somehow, I don't know, it's not that they're not true, they're too fungible, not sure. Uh, so it doesn't work. It, it's one I always reject and I, I feel bad rejecting it. When no, I, I don't think you should. I mean, maybe potentially it could be that storytelling I think when we think of just you know oral history it feels very personal and authentic to oneself so if it's not actually your story you might have your own biases sort of creeping in on that and then it's like no, in translation maybe yeah no I think I think one of the things that happens is I find them very individualistic mm. um, and so I'm always trying to move past the individual to the to the larger um polity so so you know and this i it, and they seem to me to to have in the in the balancing act that is oppression and agency they seem to be all agency and and no oppression you know because they're an individual they're, they're individuals retelling of how they managed um and then i think you i miss something about the way in which um they were constrained uh or oppressed um, and it's not that I don't want to hear the individual voice about how they're, um, um, you know, how people overcame, uh, but but it doesn't seem to me to be the whole picture. Um, so that's, I know that that's not the only way stories work. I deeply know that, uh, that that master, uh, that people are very good at it. And, 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 and that could be anyone uh, managed to balance those two things, but I think they get romanticized, and that as is is uh, creations of individual uh, overcoming, and that worries me. Right, I understand that for sure. So, I think we can wrap up here, Susan. So, thank you so much for joining us today on our episode for Smaller Narratives for a Larger World. We just been very exciting conversation and. We're looking forward to hearing more of your work and sort of the impact that it has on this field. Thank you, Julian. I appreciate the invitation. Of course. Thank you. Thank you for listening to episode three of Smaller Narratives for a Larger World. That was a conversation between co-host Jillian Kenna and Susan Smullian. To learn more and to access our other episodes, please visit org.binghamton.edu or smallernarratives.com.